Shabbat Shalom. This week we are looking at Parashat Naso, which is the longest portion in the Torah. It is very long. Um, Naso refers to to count or to take a census, and it's referring to the census that is to be taken of the sons of Aaron. Um, and specifically, we're told we, they took a census, and this, these are the sons of Gershon, and these are the sons of Merari. And not only is this who they are and how many, this is what their job is. Because after they're counted, they're told, okay, the sons of Gershon are supposed to be, uh, when we have to move the whole Mishkan, when we have to move this whole giant tent through the wilderness, it has to be someone's job to carry that around. And that's going to be the priest. So the sons of Gershon, their job is to take the soft parts, the tent, the curtains, the screen, the silks, the fabrics. They take all the soft things and carry them around. Um, the sons of Merari are in charge of all the solid things, the planks, the bars, the poles, the sockets, the things you need to assemble a structure. Um, after this description of that census and their jobs, we're going to start jumping. And this parsha will do a little bit of jumping back and forth to some different ideas. The next idea that's mentioned is about tsarata, a skin affliction. We usually call it leprosy. And we're reminded that you are supposed to remove those with tsarat from the community. They're going to go outside so that they do not infect other people in the community and that the rabbis are supposed to go um, and minister to them. Um, after that, which is only about two short sentences, three or four short sentences, um, we move to the next thought. Um, the gist of which is God does not really accept the idea of no harm, no foul. Um, we are told that if you wrong someone, in earlier parts of scripture we're told that there's recompense to be paid. And a lot of the instructions talk about a monetary recompense. You injured his oxen and you have to pay him its value. You killed his slave and you pay the value. Um, there's a whole bunch of things where you're going to pay a monetary value as recompense for a wrongdoing. Well, what happens if oh, he's not around to accept this payment. He died after you wronged him. Oh, I can get out of that, right? No, you still owe this recompense. You still owe this payment. Well, you would normally, if he's not there, you would pay it to his family or his next of kin. But if they don't exist, oh, well, then there's no one to pay. I'm okay, I can get off the hook. No, that's not how it works. If there's nobody to pay in his, from him or his family, what you would owe goes directly to the priest, and you are still responsible for repentance, and for paying the debt that you have owed. Um, it reminds us at the end of that that things that are given to the Kohen, regardless of where they came from, belong to the Kohen. If, you have been, if the Kohen has been given something to eat, if they've been given money or objects as part of this other instruction, that's theirs. They're going to keep that. The Kohen have a job to do for God, and so they don't earn money or goods or food in other ways. So the things that are given to the Kohen as part of these practices belong to them, and they get to keep them. Um, we're then told a method for determining if a woman has been adulterous, and there's a big, long procedure of to bring her in front of the rabbi, and she's going to drink bitter waters, and the bitter waters, if she has been adulterous, will make her belly swell and her thigh rupture. Um, and we are given this procedure to know that we want to be sure that we know, before we convict some of doing something wrong, before we convict a woman of being adulterous on just suspicion alone. We want to be sure. So here's a method to be sure before we go around making convictions and dealing with guilt. Um, we're told about, after that, Nazarite vows. What do they look like? And a Nazarite vow is the idea that I'm going to separate myself for God by abstaining from a lot of things, from shaving my beard or from cutting my hair or from drinking alcohol. 
And so it's described to us, what does a Nazarite vow look like? What things would you be expected to abstain from? And when your vow is done, what happens? There's a procedure and a sacrifice that you bring before the temple after your Nazarite vow is over, because they don't last forever. We're not supposed to abstain from everything forever. If you're going to do this to set yourself apart, it's going to be a short-term thing, because it's a difficult vow to keep. So God expects it be kept, and there's going to be an end point, and when it's done, there's a procedure. Um, after this is the portion I'm going to chant, which is when God tells Aaron, how are you supposed to bless the people? Uh, this is what we call the Aaronic benediction. Um, and what God says is, you are to put my name on them so that they will be blessed. You are to bless the people by putting my name upon them. Um, and after that, we have a very long section in which it, we are told that they had finished the construction of the tabernacle, and now we need to anoint it. It is sanctified, it's anointed, and then it's dedicated. And there's a whole bunch of sacrifices brought one day at a time over 12 days from the chieftains of each of the 12 tribes, um, of sacrifices to anoint and to dedicate the new Mishkan with. And by the time this is done, we have 12 silver bowls, 12 gold spoons full of incense, 12 bowls, 12, 24 of these, 25 of that. Each uh, chieftain brings these sacrifices as a sin offering, as a burnt offering, and as a peace offering. And there's a whole bunch of sacrifice done to dedicate the temple. And we might look at a long portion of description of how many bulls and how many goats and how many rams and how many bowls of silver with what incense in them and bottles of oil and other such things and say, oh, these are things that don't apply to me. I'm not bringing bowls of oil and spoons of incense and bowls to the shul to be slaughtered here. I don't need to know about this. But what we want to look at and understand from a, a, this description is that First of all, everyone's responsible for something. Each of the 12 tribes, their chieftain brought something. Everyone has something to sacrifice. Everyone has something that's part of their tithe to God. The other thing that we can think about is that everyone, having brought their sacrifice, has contributed to the building of this thing. We were told earlier about a whole bunch of different builders who came forth and did the work of building all these objects. But here we're told, even after all the objects are built, everyone who didn't build an object, technically they still contributed. The chieftains of each of the tribes brought significant portions of their flock to contribute towards the dedication of the Mishkan, not just the building of it. It's not so much that the building matters, as it is the acknowledgement of everyone in the people that this building is separate. This is a thing we've made for God. This is God's tent. Um, and so I will chant from... Um, chapter 6, 22 to 27, which is the uh, ironic benediction. But we'll consider each time we go through portions like this where there's a lot of stuff happening, not to just skip through things that don't seem to apply, because there is at least something to be gained even in these big lists of sacrifices, even in these big long sections of words that look scary. God has a message in each of these pieces.